The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, Cricket customers. Max with ads is included with your Cricket $60 unlimited plan at no additional cost. Max is the streaming platform where you can watch Scoob, Meg 2 The Trench, The Nightmare on Elm Street Collection, and so much more. Remember me. Just log in with your Cricket username and password to experience Max on all your favorite devices. We've never seen this before. Max, the one to watch for a good scream with Cricket. Phone plan streams and standard definition. Programming subject to change. Fees, terms, and restrictions apply. See cricketwireless.com for details. It's Monday, April 18th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, why indie booksellers went from hating Barnes & Noble to defending it, and what that means for the future of publishing. Plus, a look at inflation through the lens of the Big Mac Index. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. So, the New York Times published a piece over the weekend that managed to articulate a shifting opinion that, even though I think my opinion has shifted with the trend, I hadn't exactly noticed until I read the article. The article, by Elizabeth Harris, is about how Barnes & Noble transformed over the last several years in the eyes of independent booksellers from a supervillain to a darling and hero. Now, I should maybe say for disclosure here that I used to work at a Barnes & Noble back in high school and college. I loved that job. But as an artsy indie kid, I always felt a little embarrassed telling people that I worked for the corporation when my friends and I spent most of our time at independent bookstores and coffee shops. I totally bought into the anti-corporate bookstore narrative, even while being paid by one. And as an author nowadays, I'm constantly hyping up independent bookstores as well as libraries. I think they're both invaluable gems of our society and culture, as well as two institutions constantly facing threats of losing their funding. So I want them to get all the attention and business possible, especially since they lack the bloated marketing budgets of major companies. And that's kind of how a lot of people felt for years. And the New York Times points out that the feeling was so strong in the late 90s that You've Got Mail was able to make a quasi-villain out of Tom Hanks by positioning him as the scion of a Barnes & Noble-like company. Of course, times have now changed, and if You've Got Mail were to be rebooted in 2022, not only would Kathleen Kelly and Joe Fox be chatting on Hinge, but Joe Fox would secretly be Jeff Bezos, and Kathleen Kelly might very well manage a Barnes & Noble location instead of her quaint shop-around-the-corner children's bookstore. Quick sidebar, You've Got Mail itself is already actually a reboot. It was first a Hungarian play called Perfumery, which premiered in 1937, and then it became a Hollywood rom-com in 1940 starring Margaret Sullivan and Jimmy Stewart, actually titled The Shop Around the Corner. A few years later, Robert Leonard made a musical film version starring Judy Garland called In the Good Old Summertime. 
But anyways, back to our changing perceptions about big bookstores like Barnes & Noble. The reason I said Tom Hanks's character would probably be a Jeff Bezos-like one, were Parfumery to be rebooted once again, is because that real-world supervillain is exactly why the tides have turned so much, and even independent booksellers are now rooting for Barnes & Noble's success, because they now have a common enemy. Although, one could make the argument that Barnes & Noble set the stage for Amazon's earliest domination tactics. Quoting the New York Times, The American Booksellers Association, which represents independent stores, filed an antitrust lawsuit against Barnes & Noble in the 1990s. A few years before that, the group sued several publishers, saying they had unfairly charged big chains lower prices. There was a period where the competition was pretty ugly, said Oren J. Tyker, a former chief executive of the American Booksellers Association. Barnes & Noble was perceived as not just the enemy, but as being everything about corporate bookselling that was wrong. And continuing from the Times, Barnes & Noble grew from a single Manhattan bookstore in 1917 to become a dominant player by offering big discounts on bestsellers to draw in customers. Once in a store, readers were presented with an enormous selection, sometimes more than 100,000 titles, most of which were sold at full price. End quote. And then along came Amazon, using the same tactics but with even bigger discounts and even more selection. You could say Barnes & Noble walked so Amazon could run all over them. Now, Barnes & Noble is not doing too poorly at the moment. They're still the only bookstore that exists in many U.S. towns, and despite struggling a bit during the pandemic with having to cancel events and losing out on sales in its cafes, sales are up 3% over pre-pandemic performance. Barnes & Noble's chief executive, James Daunt, told the New York Times they managed that simply by selling books, the sales of which are up 14%. That's just books, not all of their other items. Items. Books are doing the job on their own. And that's in part because despite all the constant hand-wringing about people not reading as much as they used to or ebooks taking over, the publishing industry still brings home the bacon from physical book sales. According to the Association of American Publishers, 76% of publishers' sales revenue in 2021 came from physical books. So that's good news for publishers, good news for Barnes & Noble and other stores that can depend on their actual product for income instead of all the added bells and whistles like events, pastries, and trinkets. Maybe less good news for the environment that we all still love these paper books so much. But the real unfortunate underbelly to this is that, according to the New York Times, more than half of those physical books in the U.S. are sold by Amazon. More than half by one company. Ellen Adler, the publisher of the independent New Press, told the New York Times, quote, It's funny how the industry has evolved so that Barnes & Noble is now a good guy. I would say their rehabilitation has been total. End quote. But why exactly are people rooting for them now, beyond just a shared detestation of Amazon's domination? As the largest chain of bookstores in the U.S., with 600 stores still active across all 50 states, Barnes & Noble is the key to keeping publishers invested in physical stores and books. Without the maybe waning behemoth, publishers wouldn't be as incentivized to send out physical books to stores or work on PR opportunities with them, so indie bookstores would end up suffering as well. 
And that in itself is a little bit of a sideways monopoly issue. If we still had other brick-and-mortar chains reasonably competing with Barnes & Noble, the fate of publishing wouldn't rely so heavily on them alone. But as it stands, Barnes & Noble is crucial to strategies like discovery that have still yet to be fully replicated in online sales. Even accounting for targeted advertising and PR campaigns, most people buying books online look up exactly what they want to buy and buy it. In a store, you're more likely to browse around and maybe end up with an extra book you hadn't gone in looking for. And that kind of thing is crucial for smaller authors and presses. I mean, really, for any author who isn't like Stephen King, Barack Obama, or Margaret Atwood. While independent bookstores might do a better job of featuring lesser-known titles or local interests, most of them can't stock nearly as much as Barnes & Noble, so those in the publishing industry still consider the company crucial for discovery. And while independent bookstores are also great places to host authors for book events, they don't tend to generate as many audience members as events at Barnes & Noble, where authors and publishers get the added benefit of a huge order of books being placed to coincide with the event. Basically, Barnes & Noble is like the last major monolithic player in the game for a handful of strategies that are absolutely crucial in the minds of publishers. Some see it as the last bastion before an all-out Amazon takeover. So the good news for them, and maybe for all of us at least at this junction, is that the company seems to be doing better now than it has in years. Daunt, the chief executive at Barnes & Noble, might have played a hand in making the company more palatable to indie booksellers and their fans. Before being brought on at Barnes & Noble in 2019, he founded his own local chain in London and was hired in 2011 to bring the English chain Waterstones back from the brink of bankruptcy. One of his primary strategies in reviving both Waterstones and now Barnes & Noble is encouraging them to act more like independent bookstores do, catering their selections to local tastes and giving each store a bit more freedom to do what they want. They've also been watching TikTok for trends and buying a lot more manga, which sounds like an older person trying to understand the youths, but actually really worked for them. Other strategies have included putting the focus back on books instead of random items that have been cluttering up shelves in recent years, and giving a lot of stores a facelift, new carpets, fresh paint. It might all sound obvious, and the kind of thing independent bookstores were constantly doing already— But I guess when you were at the top of your game for so long, you could eschew the basics until you couldn't anymore. That's the industry news, and the redemption of a once-loathed corporation until a bigger bad came along. But in terms of general readership, trends are also looking up. According to the New York Times, there was a huge boom in book purchasing early on in the pandemic, and publishers have been expecting sales to drop back down, but they just haven't yet. Even with fewer huge releases from well-known authors, the demand has stayed strong and steady. As Daunt put it, quote, At the moment, it's being driven by an enthusiasm for reading. End quote. Simple as that. And I love to hear it. Every couple of weeks or so, I used to do a shortage report on this podcast, digging into some of the latest supply chain issues and explaining how all the dots connected. That's still happening, for sure, with climate emergency disasters and the war in Ukraine, meaning even more shortages could be on their way. But I've been feeling lately like I maybe need to start doing inflation updates instead. And here's the headline that caught my eye this weekend. 
Inflation comes for the Big Mac. According to Axios and a report from the National Restaurant Association, fast food menu prices are up 7.2% year over year, the biggest jump since 1981. Big Macs specifically, according to The Economist's Big Mac Index, have risen 7% themselves from 2020 to 2021. But more than that, Big Macs have gone up in price 40% over the last decade. The Big Mac Index from The Economist is really interesting, by the way. They've been tracking the price of the burgers around the world since 1986 as, quote, a lighthearted guide to whether currencies are at their correct level. It's based on the theory of purchasing power parity, or PPP, the notion that in the long run, exchange rates should move towards the rate that would equalize the prices of an identical basket of goods and services, in this case a burger, in any two countries. Burgernomics was never intended as a precise gauge of currency misalignment, merely as a tool to make exchange rate theory more digestible. Yet the Big Mac's index has become a global standard, included in several economic textbooks and the subject of dozens of academic studies. End quote. So, for example, the most recent reporting from December 2021 shows that a Big Mac was £3.59 in Britain and $5.81 in the U.S., and I think that's an average across cities. We'll get to that in a second. The Economist notes that the implied exchange rate based on Big Mac prices was 062 but the actual exchange rate, again in December 2021, was 0.75. Therefore, in this pop economics assessment, the British pound was undervalued by 17.1% in December 2021. But focusing back on just the U.S., Axios took a look at Big Mac prices compared to local minimum wage in the 25 towns where they conduct local reporting. This was an informal survey, but the findings are kind of interesting. So Axios found that the cheapest Big Mac from those 25 cities was in Austin, Texas, for $3.75. Now in Texas, minimum wage is $7.25 an hour, which frankly boggles my mind because that's how much I made at Barnes & Noble in Texas in 2009. But anyways, in Dallas, where minimum wage is also $7.25, the Big Mac is almost $2 more expensive at $5.69. The most expensive Big Mac from their survey is out in Seattle for $6.39. Of course, in Washington, minimum wage is $10 higher than in Texas at $17.27 an hour. But like the Texas example shows, Big Mac prices don't always rise commensurately with minimum wage. The minimum wage here in New York City is $15, and a Big Mac is $4.95. But in Richmond, Virginia, where the minimum wage is $11 an hour, a Big Mac is only $0.06 cheaper, $4.89. Now, a lot can affect the price point, not just wages, also cost of food, delivery, demand, but it's interesting to see the variance across the states. And if you're in one of those cities with more expensive Big Macs, I have even worse news for you. According to The Economist, the U.S. is actually one of the places where Big Macs are the most expensive in the world. And anyone who lives or has traveled abroad can tell you that McDonald's restaurants in other places are way nicer and more legit, too. I went to one in Zurich with a full glass-covered pastry display that wouldn't have been out of place in a fancy bakery. Looks like we really don't get any perks for having been the birthplace of the Golden Arches.
So the trailer for Thor Love and Thunder dropped this morning, and people are calling it even wilder than expected, which tracks with what director Taika Waititi told Empire Magazine last summer shortly after they wrapped production on the film. He told the magazine, quote, It's the craziest film I've ever done. If you wrote down all the elements of this film, it shouldn't make sense. It's almost like it shouldn't be made. If you walked into a room and said, I want this and this and this, who's in it? These people. What are you going to call it? Love and Thunder. I mean, you'd never work again. Maybe I won't after this. It's very different from Ragnarok. There'll be far more emotion in this film and a lot more love and a lot more thunder and a lot more Thor if you've seen the photos. End quote. I ended up watching an old livestream YTD did in April 2020 with Mark Ruffalo, in which the two reminisced about shooting Ragnarok and how they went so off script and came up with so many weird ideas that they'd leave set every day saying, Marvel's gonna fire us, they are never gonna let us touch a Marvel movie again. So this seems to be a recurring feeling YTD has, and honestly, with the absolute oversaturation of superhero films and TV shows right now, something that's throwing out all the rules and just doing whatever the heck it wants sounds like exactly what I am interested in seeing. No more of the same old superhero stuff. Let's get weird. Link to watch the trailer for yourself is in the show notes, and that is it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.